I am investor and publisher of Digest Publishing and Daily Profit Cycle, Nick Hodge. No, you're not seeing things. I am on my own this week. We are without uh, our fearless co-leader, co-host, Mr. Gerardo Del Real, who is um, out sick this week. So you're stuck with me and uh, soliloquy, as it were. I'm going to keep it short and I'm going to keep it structured. I'm not going to rant about the news or anything else random that comes to mind. I am going to uh, respond to some reader questions uh, or comments that have come in. And so we're going to talk a little bit about batteries and then we're going to talk a little bit about share structure. So uh, the first question is from a, a gentleman or a comment, I should say. The first comment is from a gentleman who's been writing in for the past couple of months, because, you know, we've been uh, talking a lot about lithium batteries and how uh, lithium is entrenched and how there's not enough raw materials in the supply chain being developed to support all these uh, battery factories that are being built. And this gentleman has been incessantly writing in telling us that uh, we're wrong, that we have our eye uh, not on the ball, and that we're missing out on some um, spectacular new uh, batteries that are being developed. Uh, and I, I won't dispute the fact that obviously lots of new battery technologies are being developed from solid state batteries to, to flow batteries to uh, different chemistries, even in the, in the lithium sphere. So uh, what I will say though, is that those batteries aren't ready for the prime time yet. They're, they're not yet commercialized and they're cer certainly not being adopted. Um, internationally by uh, globally global multi-billion dollar um, companies uh, battery or auto manufacturers uh, and being used in in the way that lithium-ion batteries are so right to the comment here he says hello nick you are busy too busy i think there are new batteries that do not require lithium or copper or uranium in fact one battery requires water and provides electricity while extracting nitrogen and expels pure water that recharges in the time it takes to pour more water into the battery. Seconds. Another battery called the Forever Battery is a solid-state battery and can power a phone all month and then be recharged in a minute. It does not burst into flames if its casing is breached and if something else is burning and the battery case is opened, for example, in a car accident, uh, the water puts out the fire. Uh, he goes on to tell me about um, a new liquid battery as well, where you can drink the electrolyte, which I'm sure he saw in a newsletter promotion video. Uh, this battery does not explode. It does not eat its cathode, he says, uh, while being charged or discharged, and you just simply have to add water to charge. You can find more data on each, uh, which billionaires are funding mass production against Elon's beliefs. So... Let's take these uh, as they came here. Let's talk about first about this Forever Battery, which is uh, a newsletter promotion that's been around for a while um, by uh, Mr. Charles Mizrahi, who I used to be a co-worker of back in uh, my previous publishing life uh, before he left and went over to the uh, Agora affiliates. And, and Mr. Mizrahi has had this Forever Battery promo out for a while now. It's It's been running. Um and, uh, you know, I just got this information from from Stock Gumshoe, who who DTs all these newsletter uh, promotions, including ones that Gerardo and I put out. So uh, the Forever Battery is is being made by a company called uh, Blue Solutions, which was public and then was taken back private by uh, a French group called 
Bolaure. Excuse my uh, French there. It's uh, not very polished. And um, those batteries are quasi-commercialized, but they've had problems of their own. Um, Gumshoe goes on to say in his report that Paris was using them um, in so-called blue buses because the company, again, was called Blue Solutions. Um, and a couple of them caught fire, despite what our commenter said. Um, he says it's a solid-state battery that doesn't catch fire yet. That They were catching fire on buses in Paris. Uh, so they suspended the use of their blue buses. Um, and again, these aren't uh, commercialized batteries. And so the second one he was talking about there was a liquid battery. This is also from a, a newsletter promotions, uh, a newsletter promotion. We've mentioned, in fact, on this podcast before by uh, Miss Naomi Prinz. And that's a company called ESS Tech with the clever ticker of GWH uh, to stand for gigawatt hours, which is how uh, battery manufacturing facilities are, um, you know, ranked by their size or, or how they're quantified, I should say. That company, the, the liquid battery company, is a, a company called ESS Tech under the ticker ESS. And uh, it came about through the SPAC craze in 2021, uh, which you should know those SPACs start at a, at a $10 price and then are, are valued in the market once they're uh, de-SPAC'd, once uh, an asset is, is put into the, the special purpose vehicle. Um, and this one started trading in the second half of 2021, quickly ramped from that $10 base price all the way up to $28, and since then has a skied downhill and to the right to a low of a dollar seventy some just this week. Um, this is a company that is making um, grid scale batteries or is attempting to, but um, their forecasts for for revenue last year were three and a half million. Um, my companies and, and Gerardo's companies make more than three and a half million, and, and we're a small mom and pop shop. So this is in no way you know, beginning to dominate the, the global battery uh, race. In fact, it has continued to lose money. We'll lose tens of millions of dollars this year. And that's not to say that the, the tech doesn't work, but it is to say that it hasn't been a, a great investment. And um, the investments that we've made in lithium itself have far outperformed, um, you know, some of these battery and, and EV companies that are being pounded really hard by uh, other newsletter editors in their letters and in their promotions. In fact, in this case, you would have uh, lost a significant amount of capital if you were putting your money into ESS tech. And that's why, uh, by and large, we go right to the source, right? We go to the um, the elements or the metals and the minerals that are going to be needed to make these batteries. And um so a, a couple of points I, I wanted to make there, which I know I've made before, so sorry if you've heard me talk about some of this stuff. But uh, the first thing is, and, and this comes from a presentation given recently uh, by Simon Moores of, of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, who um, has his finger on the pulse of all the battery factories that are being commissioned, developed, uh, built across the world, and the inputs that they're going to need. And so I made some notes just to get through this uh, quickly, and then we'll get on to the second question. So there's 350 battery gigafactories being built in the world right now. These are lithium battery gigafactories. Of that 350, some 140 
uh, are built but aren't at the the giga level yet so they're being expanded to the giga level um for the production of those batteries that are going to come out of those 350 uh gigafactories that are being built 70 to 80 percent of the cost is now in the minerals metal metals and chemicals that are needed to produce those batteries so that's the uh, lithium that's the cobalt that's the the nickel that's the graphite um and that's just what it is that's the uh the lithium battery is the chemistry that you know uh, global auto manufacturers have decided on whether they're getting their batteries from uh you know a catl or whether they're getting them from panasonic or whether they're uh building them themselves like tesla they're all lithium batteries they're not forever batteries they're not uh, liquid batteries um, to relate back to the gentleman's comment. And then so uh, according to Benchmark uh, Mineral Intelligence, there's going to be uh, a capacity of 5,000 gigawatt hours um, of, of, of battery production capacity by 2035. That's up from 750 gigawatt hours today. Um, so a 7X as, as Mr. Moores describes it. So to to sate or to meet all the need of of the minerals for those for that 5000 gigawatt hour capacity that's going to be uh, built by 2035 I might have said 2050 a couple of minutes ago excuse me 2035 which is a short 12 years away by the way um we'll need 59 new lithium mines at 45000 uh, tons per annum each and we'll need 72 new nickel mines at 40 42,000 tons per annum each. And then he goes on to say in this recent presentation that uh, by 2050, mining and refining needs uh, $3.5 trillion of investment to uh, meet the demand for all these metals and minerals that are the inputs for these batteries. And, and so far, there's been about $100 billion committed. So uh, a ways to go to get to that three and a half. A trillion. So yes, I'm busy, but um, I do keep my eye on the ball, and I look at these other battery technologies, and um, I look at the the other you know chemistries that are being developed, for example. And at some point, there will be a shift, especially for the the grid scale batteries, the flow batteries, etc. But we're not there yet, and and when it happens, uh, believe you me, I will be there to. Uh, put my dollars in in what I think will be the the winning technology. But as it stands right now, as it's stood for the past couple of years, um, the lithium battery is where it's at, and and the components that go along with that have been the place to make money. The uh, graphite companies, the nickel companies, and uh, certainly the lithium companies from uh, the first run in the in the 2016 2017 time frame which uh, i was a part of and was out visiting uh, you know the lithium flats in in nevada and and gerardo went down to, to argentina in that time uh, to check out another company and both of those companies we ended up making good money on uh, both were acquired uh, one was lithium x which was my first big win in the in the in the lithium space of uh, some 1400 or 1500 percent winner um, and Gerardo was down in Argentina visiting uh, Advantage Lithium, which was taken out by Cobre, which is now called Alchem. And um, so we've been in the space for a bit. We've kicked tires. We we put our feet or boots on the ground. Um, and then all the way up to this recent, you know, 2020 to 2022, up to present day, 
sort of the second wave of lithium, which has seen, uh, you know, the price of lithium carbonate rise several times over in China and the world start to realize that there's simply not enough of these inputs, um, you know, to make all these batteries that we've globally committed to doing. And, um, and it's evolved much further from, you know, just uh, the lithium triangle in South America and Nevada and uh, hard rock mining and the spodumene mining in, in, in Australia to uh, lots of other projects, particularly in, in Canada and the, and the James Bay region that are um, now, uh, you know, offering spectacular drill results for um, uh, lithium spodumene bearing pegmatites and um, where, you know, battery companies are setting up shop, where auto companies are setting up shop in, in Quebec to take advantage of that. So, um, that's it on batteries for me. Let's go to the second um, question or comment here from uh, Mr. Sean G, who has written a couple of times and um, uh, was one of the provided one of the impetuses or impetus plural anyway. One of the, he provided the impetus for our discussion on on private placements uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you know how to get started, um, how to qualify as an accredited investor, what to look for. Um, when you're being, uh, when you're interested in doing private placements and he had a follow-up question that, that I'll read right here. He says, uh, Hey, Nick and Gerardo, I was blown away that you answered my question on Bizarro world as I'm a huge fan of both of you. Uh, the episode a couple of weeks ago was especially enlightening. You two dived into precious or excuse me. You two dived into private placements. It was really cool to hear how you both really got in the game. I wish that you would explain uh, how share structure works. How you how you differentiate from a company with a profitable share structure uh, from one that is totally diluted? I could Google it, but I would rather hear it from uh, two professionals who live it. What do you look for when it comes to how a company sells shares? What are indicators that make it a good share structure as opposed to red flags? And I'm talking from the standpoint of most of us that have to buy in the open market because we don't meet the qualifications for being an accredited investor. Um, if you've heard me and Gerardo talk or read some of our reports or subscribed to our letters, particularly the private placement ones, a junior resource insider or uh, Hodge family office, private Intel, you'll know that share structure is uh, one of the first and most important things we look at when evaluating a company. It, um, it depends on the stage of the company, but let's, let's talk about, I guess, a couple of different stage companies. If it's a very early stage company, one that's um, you know, pre-IPO or, or about to IPO, it, you know, we look for not just the share count, but at what price they sold those shares and to whom they sold those shares. Um, it, one of the the tropes or one of the conventional things that that promoters do, especially on TSX and TSXV listed stocks, is issue themselves, you know, quote unquote, cheap paper. That is to say. Um, they sell themselves shares at a penny or, or two pennies a piece when the company is formed. And in this way, they can uh, get themselves millions of shares at a very low price because they're only priced at a penny or two pennies each. And then they go out um, go to their family and friends and perhaps raise money at um, five cents a share. And by the time it gets to, um, it, I guess, you know, groups like ours, groups like mine and Gerardo's, you know, they might be raising money at that 10 or 15 cents. The problem is that um, that's sort of like building your house on on sand, right? 
because once it comes to trade, you've got a lot of cheap shares out there that can um, erode the progress. Um, and uh, human nature is such that, you know, if you've sold yourself shares at a penny or two pennies and it comes trading at, at 15 cents, I mean, you've already 10 or, or 15 bagged your money, right? And so you're going to be selling and it creates an overhang that the, the stock isn't able to uh, ascend through or, or poke through because you've got these cheap shares being sold into the market. Um, you know, staying on the early stage companies, uh, the other thing uh, people do, you asked about red flags, is, um, you know, they don't register their shares in, in their name. And what I mean by that is um, there might be a certain amount of shares out um, and yes, the insiders own some and, and have registered them in their name, but then they have shares that the market doesn't know about that they don't have to publicly report on because if you're a true insider, you know, you have to report when you buy and sell shares. But, you know, if they put these shares in, a, uh, in some other vehicle in a wife's name or a relative's name or in some numbered company that doesn't hold above the, the threshold for reporting, then they can be as an insider, an insider. Um, selling those shares and not having to report that uh, to the market. So, you know, one of the things we ask for is a full, it's called a capitalization table. And you can ask this of any company that um, you're going to be uh, potentially investing in. Say, I want to see the full cap table, the full capitalization table. I want to see every share that you've sold at, at what price it was sold and and who owns it. And, and the company can provide you that. They have a share ledger, right? Um, and if they won't, then that's another red flag because they certainly uh, have it. And then uh, let me read these questions again. So I guess that's how we would look at the share structure from, you know, one that's good, that, that allows a company to succeed versus one that's totally diluted in, in, in Sean's words. Um, uh, speaking of totally diluted, you know, um, some, and now I'm talking more about companies that are already trading, um, not pre-IPO or about to IPO. Um, you know, you look at their share count. That's one of the first things I look at. If, if somebody tells me about a new stock, I go to Stockwatch or whatever, and I look at the uh, the share count. And then I go to their slide deck and I see, you know, where are those shares? Uh, the problem, once you get above, I mean, there's no concrete number, but once you get into the 80, 90, certainly above 100 million shares out is uh, the share structure becomes a bit squirrely, right? It gets tougher to keep track of where all those shares are. Um, it's tougher to clean the clean the stock up is, is the phrase you hear a lot to say that, you know, if shares were sold at a previous level that they've all been uh, accounted for or they've all been, um, you know, uh, the stock has been uh, above that price for so long, so they've likely cleaned up and aren't selling anymore. Uh, but even more than that, what happens is you start to dilute yourself, which is uh, what Sean mentioned there. It, do it doesn't afford you the opportunity to uh, make a mistake or to have a miss if we're dealing with exploration because exploration is very expensive and is uh, often unsuccessful. Uh, certainly not all drill holes hit, and so you have to drill more, and that requires more capital. Um and when you get into these higher share counts, um, it becomes all the more dilutive then to, to fund the company again, to add to the share count, to dilute it down. Um, and then you sort of get on a treadmill, right, where you end up having to, to roll the stock back or, or consolidate the shares. Um, what else do we look for? Um, what do you look for when it comes to how companies sell shares? 
what makes a good share structure. And then so, you know, the the, the other thing is is insider ownership, right? Um, I talked about, you know, wanting them insiders to have the shares in their name, but you also want to look at uh, who else owns the shares. I guess um, I was going to look at a company here called Bravo, which we've talked about a couple of times, and, and maybe we can throw the slide up here um, when it comes to the section so you guys can see what I'm talking about. Um, this is a company that has uh, 100 million shares out. No warrants, which is something I should mention. Um, you know, warrants are, are future dilution. Um, companies have to issue warrants to sweeten the pot when they're raising money because uh, it entices investors or it convinces investors to put money in the company um, because it allows them optionality in the future or leverage in the future if it if it does work out. Um, and in my experience, the lower quality of company, the, the worst terms it has to offer from a share structure standpoint, either a full warrant instead of a half or a lower price warrant or a warrant that has a, a much longer duration. So you have an overhang of those warrants for longer. Uh, in Bravo's case, uh, no warrants issued, right? It's, uh, it's 101 million shares out, no warrants. They were able to raise all their money, uh, tens of millions of dollars, by the way, 40-some million if memory serves, um, early last year with, with no warrants. And then uh, who owns those shares? Well, you know, two-thirds of them, 62% or so, are owned by the board. A fully reporting BlackRock, you know, the uh, financial behemoth BlackRock owns another 10%. And then there's two other institutional groups that own another, it looks like, you know, 13 and a half percent or so. Um, and then there's other strong hands, including Rick Rule, Sprott, and a, and a group called RCF that own another one, two, four, call it five and a half percent. And so, uh, at the end of the day, there's only less than 10% of shares available out there for retail to trade. So when you hear about a tight share structure, um, you know, we're always looking for a tight share structure. That's that's the term that we use. Um, it's not necessarily just share count. It's also at what price were they sold? Um, are there warrants out? How many warrants? What are the price of the warrants? And then who owns these shares, right? With, you know, management with two thirds and institutions with another um, 20 some percent, those are strong hands, right? Those aren't going to be people who are in the market selling stock, right? They're in it for the long term. They're in it to let the company execute on its goals. Um, and they'll likely, you know, participate in, in future financings. And that's, a another thing to keep in mind when you're looking at share structure, who are those investors and are they in it for a flip, you know, to make a couple pennies per share times, however many thousands or millions of shares they have, or are they, deep-pocketed, strong-hand groups that will continue to fund the company as it hits its milestones and needs more capital. Uh, those are the best types of shareholders, right? Because not only are they not selling, but uh, they'll come back and invest more without, without you know, flipping the shares, without selling shares to participate in a new uh, financing, which you, you see a lot of times in these smaller companies, right? Uh, you have shareholders that, that own stock, and when it comes time to fund the company again, they're selling the stock that they have, to participate in the next financing. And that's another one of those uh, treadmills. Um, and I guess that's that's a pretty good summary on on share structure there, the things we look for, what makes a good share structure, um, et cetera. Uh, again, uh, we encourage you all to, to write in either in the comments of the YouTube videos or uh, by contacting customer service, uh, customer service at digestpublishing.com. 
Um, we love to hear from you, whether you're a, a subscriber or not. We love to talk shop, talk about the markets, talk about the things we look for when evaluating companies. And we would, of course, like to uh, have you as a subscriber. So um, that's a pretty long soliloquy there, 25 minutes or so by myself without Gerardo. I hope that was uh, insightful for some of you. I hope uh, some of you wanted to learn about share structure and uh, as always, like we say, uh, like, comment, share, subscribe, and um, we hope these videos are, are useful for some of you. Have a good week out there, everybody. Hey there, you independent-minded investor. If you like this video, make sure to tell us so by clicking the like button below. Subscribe to our channel so you never miss another one. And share it with everyone you know on social media. You can also click the link in the description below to check out more information-packed videos just like this one. Thanks for watching.